Today we're faced with a very difficult parable, a story of a manager who's about to get the sack, who does something that's at best morally dubious to try to save his own skin. And Jesus says, be a bit more like him. That's strange. So I wonder what we should make of all of this. Hi and welcome to St Ninian's Church in Stonehouse. My name is Stuart and it's my privilege to be the minister here and to welcome you to our service today. You are welcome wherever you find yourself. We're glad that you have chosen to join us. Whoever you are and wherever you find yourself, know that you are welcome here and loved by God. So let's have a listen to this difficult parable as John reads for us today. Jesus said to his disciples, There was once a rich man who had a servant who managed his property. The rich man was told that the manager was wasting his master's money. So he called him in and said, What is this I hear about you? Hand in a complete account of your handling of my property, because you cannot be my manager any longer. The servant said to himself, My master is going to dismiss me from my job. What shall I do? I am not strong enough to dig ditches, and I am ashamed to beg. Now I know what I will do, and then when my job is gone, I shall have friends who will welcome me in their homes. So he called in the people who were in debt to his master. He asked the first one, How much do you owe my master? One hundred barrels of olive oil, he answered. Here is your account, the manager told him. Sit down and write fifty. And then he said to the other one, And you, how much do you owe? Thousand sacks of wheat, he answered. Here is your account, the manager told him. Rate 800. As a result, the master of this dishonest manager praised him for doing such a shrewd thing. Because the people of this world are much more shrewd in handling their affairs than the people who belong to the light. Jesus went on to say, And so I tell you, make friends for yourself with worldly wealth, so that when it gives out, you will be welcome in the eternal home. Whoever is faithful in small matters will be faithful in large ones. Whoever is dishonest in small matters will be dishonest in large ones. If, then, you have not been faithful in handling worldly wealth, how can you be trusted with true wealth? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to someone else, who will give you what belongs to you? No servant can be the slave of two masters. He will hate one and love the other. He will be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Chapters and verses in the Bible were added to help us to find our way around. Later, someone decided that adding in titles would also be helpful. And as many of you know, I think you should go through your Bible with a marker pen and score them all out. Except that would mean writing on your Bible and that gives me the fear almost as much as the titles do. So it's up to you. But even if you don't score them all out, you should know that you should try to ignore them as much as you can. And here's why. The titles close things down. This is the parable of the shrewd manager. But it could be the parable of the unfair master or the parable of the big discounts. Calling it something steers us towards a meaning, one meaning, one right answer. And that's not what parables are for. 
Parables are stories to wonder about. We're meant to grapple with them and discover something new each time we read them. They were never supposed to have one meaning or one right answer. What's doubly unhelpful is this week, Luke, the writer of this gospel, tries to tell us what the parable is about. Or at least, that's what the bit at the end about being faithful with a little and a lot and serving two masters looks like. I just said that the chapters and verses were added. Punctuation was added too. Someone decided where the sentences and paragraphs ended. And then, added to all of that, there's this thing called the lectionary, the list of readings for each week. So last week the lectionary split up the three parables about loss and it missed one out. We'll no doubt come back to it sometime on its own, the parable of the prodigal son, the lost son. But why am I telling you all this? Well, it's something you should know. It's important. We take things at face value. When someone gives you a Bible, you open it and you assume that it has always been like this with titles and chapters and verses. It hasn't. Someone somewhere decided that the bit we read today should be chapter 16. It could just as easily have been part of chapter 15. There was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was squandering his property. So today we have another parable and it's a really hard and totally unsatisfactory story about a guy who is getting the sack and he does something self-serving and morally dubious and Jesus says, you should be a bit more like that, sort of. This parable comes in the back of these three parables about loss, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. But we discovered last week that the sheep and the coin and the son aren't really lost. The loss is the sheep owners, the women and the fathers. I suggested that in these three parables, the only way to know you've lost something, like one of a hundred sheep or one of ten coins, is to count and to realise that one is missing. But this parable today takes that to a whole different level. There was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was squandering his property. This rich man has no idea how much he has. He doesn't even notice that things aren't as they should be. All he knows is that someone is accused of squandering his property, the guy who's supposed to be in charge of it. And it seems like this man is a rubbish boss because he goes to the manager and asks for an account of what's been happening And before the manager can even answer, he's told he's getting the sack. That he can't be the manager anymore. So before we go any further, that's got to be worth thinking about, surely. The manager has to have a right to explain. Surely the rich man wouldn't simply take the word of someone else without checking the facts. I mean, it's not when the rich man had noticed a problem. As far as he's aware, everything was fine. And then... Instead of investigating, he just dismisses the manager. He doesn't give the manager a chance. That's just not fair. But there were no employment regulations, no trade unions, so the rich man can do whatever he likes. It's a good job it's not like that these days, isn't it? The manager is about to be out of a job. And he has the same worries that any of us would have. What am I going to do? How am I going to look after my family? And look at what he thinks. I'm not strong enough to dig. 
and I would be ashamed to beg. He's calculating, weighing his options. He's got this managerial post. But when he gets a sack, he'll be disgraced. So he'll have to work in some kind of manual labour and he's not up to that. We've seen in other parables how the labour market works. People gathered in the square and they were chosen each day. The best workers, the strongest, would be picked first. And then there would be people who never got picked to work. There was no welfare state. Those who had no work would have to beg. The manager has been a man of status and position. He could never lower himself to beg. Actually, I think he's calculating that the people who worked under him are just completely unlikely to look out for him. So he hatches a plan. He's going to create what we would call a soft landing for himself. This guy is smart, shrewd even. And at this point, we might even be rooting for him. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he asked the first, how much do you owe my master? Sorry, what? This manager has no idea what's owed. It's starting to sound like the charges against them are true. He doesn't know what's going on in the business he's supposed to be in charge of. The first man answered, a hundred jugs of olive oil. And he said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and make it 50. Then he asked another, and how much do you owe? And he replied, a hundred containers of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and make it 80. It's both brilliant and utterly stupid. The master has no idea how much these people owe. It seems as though the manager doesn't know either. But the debts are vast. What we know as a jug of oil is actually a measurement known as a bath, which is 22 litres. That's a debt of 2,200 litres of oil, or over 800 gallons. 100 measures of wheat, well that's 10 bushels per measure. And one bushel equals about 60 pounds, 27 kilos of wheat. So that's about a million wheat kernels. That's over 27 metric tonnes of wheat. And this is in the day where every single olive is picked and squeezed by hand and every single stalk is cut and threshed by hand. So here's the plan. Because the master has no idea what he's owed, he gives them all a discount and he thinks that when he gets sacked, these people will remember his kindness and give him a job. Besides, he's already on his way out. It's not like he has to please the master anymore. I wonder what you make of his plan. Is it a good plan? I'm not so sure. The debtors are going to be pleased with the discount, but who would want to hire a guy that has no idea what he's owed and is happy to write half of it off? And when the master finds out, he has to admit the manager did well. At the start of this story, the master has only debt and now he has the majority of what he was owed and a new reputation for being generous, even though forgiving the debts was nothing to do with him. And that's the end of the parable. Yeah, I don't really get it either. There's loads of debate about this story. How on earth is this any kind of example for the disciples? Being shrewd, in this case means getting what you want by tricking people. And apparently that's a good thing. I wonder if this is something that's a bit lost in translation. The Bible is full of people who are shrewd and they're held up as heroes. People who trick their brother out of his birthright. 
Someone who tricks a man into marrying the wrong sister. A queen who keeps quiet about who she is and tricks the king to save her people. Sometimes being shrewd is about defying conventional wisdom. David is shrewd in his fight with Goliath. He knows his skills and makes the best use of them in the face of what looks like overwhelming odds. I wonder, I wonder what that would look like for us. But this is a story about money, about cash, about ill-gotten gains. There were really strict rules about lending money. You couldn't lend and charge interest. It wasn't allowed. But there was ways around that. In an agricultural economy, people need a loan to get started when they're planting and they pay it back at harvest. It wasn't money, so that was allowed. But interest was charged. Maybe the manager just knocked off the interest. The debtors paid back what they had borrowed and the master got what he actually lent. But we've no idea. No idea if that's what happened and it's a big leap to suggest that the manager had any kind of fairness or justice in mind. He didn't even know what was owed. His sole motivation is self-interest. So the big question hanging over this parable is who is the master? This is another story where we might be tempted to give that role to God, just like in the last lot of parables, but it just doesn't work. Are we really saying that God is an absentee landlord who has no idea how much he owns and is only interested when someone says he might be getting swindled? Is God so disinterested in justice, not even pausing to hear the case? Is God amused by our vain attempts to mitigate the consequences of our actions? It doesn't fit with anything we know about God. So thankfully Jesus tells us the answer. Or at least Luke does. You can't serve God in money. But be smart. I wonder if the end of this reading even belongs with the parable. It seems to, but it's just like like giving the parable a title. If the new chapter started at the end of the parable at verse 8 or 9, we probably wouldn't mind but we still get this bit about making friends through our dishonest wealth. So what's that about? In Jesus' day, it would be a good question. How did you get your money? You might play by the rules, but where did your inheritance come from? Did someone somewhere bend the rules and that has benefited you? Just how did you get rich? And we could ask ourselves the same question. Where does our money come from? Who do you work for? Who owns that company? Where do the materials come from? Who do you provide services for? What about your pension? Where's that invested? Arms? Oil and gas? Tobacco? They all give excellent returns. Or maybe it's that lottery win, or a line that came up at the bookies, or selling a car or a house, but sold is seen. You can work out the problem for yourself. Or what about our inheritance? Glasgow became rich on sugar and tobacco and cotton and slavery. Our local economy was once built on weaving and mining. The cotton was picked by slaves and brought here. Some of that we can do something about. Some we can't. We can sometimes choose where we work, but the tax from arms sales and fossil fuels pays for our hospitals and schools. The temptation might be for the church to try and step out of all of that, but it's impossible, and Luke knew that. So what do we do? 
Perhaps we are being encouraged to put that tainted legacy to good use, to be shrewd, to build good from bad, to use what we have to right some wrongs. Perhaps the link between the parable and the second part is intention. The manager helps those who owe, incidentally, almost accidentally. His plan isn't to write off their debts, it's to look after himself, but he does both. We know that's not right, and he did too. So we have a choice. We need to choose who to serve. We can't escape the ways of the world completely, but we can choose our motivation, and we can choose our master. So who will you choose? Choose wisely and be shrewd.
Gracious God, your relationship with your people is open and loving and liberating. It's through knowing you that we discover our real humanity and through knowing you that we understand who we are and are set free to live as your people. We give thanks for that life-giving and life-altering relationship. For all we have been, and all through you we have yet to become. And so we pray for our world, knowing that it is your world. We pray for those people and places kept apart from or close to the values of the kingdom, where peace and justice and compassion and grace will reign in abundance and will direct all things. We pray for those who are bereft of love, considered unlovable, reduced to living a lonely life, grief-stricken, outcast, forgotten. May they experience the love that you offer us all. We pray for those who are bound by all the things that restrict them or damage them in life, addiction, ill health in body, mind or spirit. We pray that in you they may find the freedom they crave for their flourishing. And as we give thanks for all those who have gone before us in faith, we bless you again for our late Queen Elizabeth, for her courage in the face of overwhelming expectation, for her sense of duty, for her hospitality and kindness offered to so many, and for her daily trust in the example and grace of Jesus Christ. Commending again her family to your care and trusting that she lives now in your presence, we pray for our King as he assumes his many responsibilities. May he find support and strength for the way ahead, direct his steps and guide his paths in the days and years to come. These prayers we offer through Jesus Christ, who taught us to pray in these words together, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen.